0: This afternoon, I want to devote most of the time to the question of the authorship of Daniel, as I think that is perhaps more of a disputed question at present than the authorship of the Psalms. It has been traditionally held that many of the Psalms were written by David, the king of Israel. The reason for this is found in the heading of the Psalms, in the fact that the New Testament expressly attributes certain Psalms to David, and also in the fact that uh, David seems to have been the man most gifted and most prepared to write the Psalms at that time. David was a man of deep devotion despite his sinfulness. David loved the Lord. David was a musician. He was a poet. He was a man of deep religious feeling. David was a man of wide experience. He was a leader of the people. And it would seem that at that time no one was as well qualified as he to write the Psalms. We have always regarded the Psalms as divinely inspired, as the word of God, as not merely the thoughts of man's hearts, but rather as the divine mirror of the human heart, and that the psalmists wrote under the inspiration of God's Spirit. It is sometimes said that the Psalms were simply man's response to God's revelation. But that is not quite the story. For the thoughts that are found in some of the Psalms, such as Psalm 139, are thoughts that do not arise spontaneously in the heart of man apart from revelation. And so the church has always looked upon the Psalms as having been given by revelation from God and, of course, as inspired. So that has been the traditional picture with respect to the book of Psalms. Now, for a time, the liberal criticism denied the Davidic authorship of the Psalms. It maintained that David was nothing more than a rude warrior chieftain who would never have been able to have written these Psalms. And in a certain sense, you may say that David's sin has been causing the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme even at this point. But that view now seems no longer to be held. Again, it has been archaeology that has brought about a shift of opinion. There are Babylonian psalms and passages of wisdom literature, so-called, and the result has been a tendency to date the psalms earlier and earlier. What seems to be the viewpoint now is that the psalms arose early in the worship of Israel, in the cult, as it is generally stated, and that our task is to classify these psalms to see what kind of a psalm they are. Now that is not a particularly edifying task for the simple reason that men don't always come up with the same answer and there's just not enough information given to do that in the way that modern scholarship sometimes demands. I still think that our greatest uh, value from the study of the psalms comes from a study of the content of the psalm, not so much from the study of its form, but from its very content. And the study of the content shows that the psalms are speaking to our hearts. We find ourselves mirrored in the psalms, and the cries of the psalmist are the same cries that arise in our own hearts. So the Psalter, then, I think, is the book that we must use when we praise God for our own devotional meditation. It brings a great deal of comfort to each one of us, and I cannot see that there is particular evidence that these songs were written simply for use in the cultists, as modern critics say, and uh, then uh, giving us permission simply to characterize them and categorize them and so on and let it go about at that. I think there has been a great deal of misinterpretation of some of the psalms, and in particular the question revo- revolves around whether the psalms in any way speak of Christ. Modern criticism says, no, that we misunderstand and we misread the Psalms if we believe that they speak to us of Christ. But certainly the New Testament gives us a different view than that, and if we read the New Testament we realize that the Psalms are speaking concerning Jesus Christ, that they have the predictive element in them as well as do the prophetical writings. Now, that has been a very cursory survey of the Psalms, Uh, I would simply say in passing that uh, criticism has been leveled against Psalm 119, for example. It has been labeled as late because of the great acrostic that it contains. But now uh, typical uh, similar psalms have been found from Babylonia, coming from an earlier date, and consequently there is no longer the, the desire to date the psalms as late as was once the case. I'm not going to say much on this subject. I want to devote myself mainly to the book of Daniel... Um, The question of the Psalms is, perhaps for the Christian believer, not as troublesome a question as some of these others. Uh, It simply amounts to whether we're going to take the word of the New Testament at face value or not. And uh, we realize that whereas in some Psalms we may not know the authorship of the Psalm, we get the benefit of reading these Psalms. And I frankly think that the critical view here is too technical and too uninteresting and too boring to spend a lot of time with. It's not the kind of thing that I think is ever going to have much effect in the Christian church for the very fact that the Psalms contain such evidential value that you and I as Christians cannot help but be blessed by them when we read them. We, uh, no longer, we can no more stay away from the book of Psalms than a thirsty man can stay away from water. We simply have to go there to read the Psalms to find out the blessing that they bring to us, and when we need blessing, we turn to the Psalms, and we find that blessing there. So that no matter how much criticism has to say on the book of Psalms, the Christian heart is simply going to turn to the Psalms and read them. Uh, We just can't help ourselves. We have to do that. And I don't think that we as Christians would be as troubled by critical views of the Psalms as might be the case with some of the other books. And that is why I have deliberately chosen these uh, um, topics. Now, it's been my fault that we're a little behind schedule because I talked longer on the book of Genesis than I had originally intended to do. But I would like to give the rest of this hour to a consideration of the book of Daniel, which is coming again into the forefront as a point of controversy between those who regard the Bible as the inerrant word of God and those who hold a looser view of the scriptures or those who do not believe that the Bible is the word of God at all. Now, if you read the book of Daniel, and we'll consider that from now on, if you read the book of Daniel, you cannot escape the impression that the prominent figure in this book is Daniel himself, that he was an historical character, that he actually was at the court of Nebuchadnezzar and later of Belshazzar, and that he said the things that were attributed to him. Uh, There is reason for believing that he was the author of the book, that it was not written down at his time by somebody else, but by Daniel himself, because Christ says, when ye see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Daniel uh, spoke that section. (coughs) Now the book of Daniel is such a unity that if Daniel spoke this section, which is found in the ninth ninth chapter of Daniel, and again alluded to in the 11th chapter, if Daniel spoke this section, he spoke the remainder of the book also because of the unity of the book, a question that we will consider shortly. So the Christian church has always maintained that Daniel was the author of this book. Uh, There has been, however, an alternative theory which denied the book to Daniel. And that alternative theory is very old. It goes back to the third century of our era when a man by the name of Porphyry, who was born at Tyre in Palestine and who studied under Plotinus in Athens, wrote 15 books which he called Against the Christians, Kata Christianon, Against the Christians. All of these books are lost with the exception of a part of the twelfth book, which was a commentary on the book of Daniel. And that part is preserved for us in the commentary of Jerome on Daniel. Now, in this commentary, Porphyry makes the statement that the book was not written by Daniel himself because Daniel could not have known the future now porphyry was opposed to christianity and porphyry did not believe in predictive prophecy so he plainly says that daniel could not have known the future and again i feel somewhat toward porphyry as i do toward wellhausen he wasn't trying to gloss this over and tell us that now we have a deeper insight into god's ways or anything like that he just plainly said that daniel couldn't know the future that's a denial of predictive prophecy If a man wants to deny predictive prophecy, he has the right to do that. But let him, all I ask is that he be open and above board about it. And Porphyry was that. Daniel could not have known the future. So, for that reason, he denies the authorship of the book to Daniel. Now, that's a very clear-cut position. You can get your teeth into that, and you can discuss it. Furthermore, Porphyry goes on and says that the author of the book of Daniel was a Jew who lived in the second century before Christ and when he used the name of Daniel he falsified or he lied. Now uh, the Latin word which Jerome uses there is the word mentiri which means to lie or to falsify. And that is what Porphyry thought about the procedure of this unknown Jew of the second century B.C. Now, I'd like to uh, ask you to uh, examine carefully what is involved here. We are being told, as I said this morning, that the question of authorship was unimportant back in biblical times and early times. Today, a man writes a book and copyrights it so that his name will be uh, maintained on the book and nobody else can use the material unless he gets permission to do it. I have my own opinion of that procedure, but at any rate, that's what is done today. The argument, then, is that that was not always the case. In ancient times, people didn't care what name apparently was attached to a book. They wrote a book, and they would put somebody else's name to it to give it greater authority. And so this argument is used to show, for example, that Isaiah didn't really write Isaiah. The name didn't mean anything, in effect, and... uh, Daniel didn't write Daniel and it didn't really matter whose name was attached to the book and so the authors of Deuteronomy used the name of Moses but that was just the custom of the times. There wasn't anything wrong with that. Now this is the rather glib argument that is being advanced today in order to undermine the authority of the Bible. And let's just look at it for a moment and see whether it has any foundation in fact. We can appeal to Porphyry. Porphyry was an ancient And Porphyry didn't say it doesn't matter who wrote the book of Daniel. Porphyry says this unknown author lied when he used the name of Daniel. Now it seems to me that Porphyry held about the same view of authorship that you and I hold today. Porphyry thought that if this man had written the book of Daniel, he should not have have used Daniel's name. That was simply not telling the truth. And that, I think, is a strong refutation of this idea that authorship didn't mean anything back in times of antiquity. We might as well notice that a couple of Greek comedians uh, were punished rather severely for inserting lines into the plays that they were reciting, for ad so to speak. One of them was fined rather heavily, and the other was punished by banishment simply because he had done that, which would seem to imply that the ancients were a little bit concerned about who wrote their books and who said that they wrote these books. Uh, it is true that there is one passage in which Imblicius, I believe it is, uh, commends certain disciples uh, because they have written and used other names, the name of their teacher, Pythagoras, I think it was. Well, the very fact that he commends them for that shows that that was not the ordinary practice. If that had been the ordinary practice, there would have been no point in the commendation. And when you appeal to the Uh, pseudepigrapha, uh, books like Enoch and so on. We know that third Enoch at least was the work of a certain rabbi. I don't think anybody believed that Enoch sat down and wrote those words. They were simply attributed to him and that was only a literary device. But this was not regarded as the word of God and there is the point. Uh, Whoever did write these uh, really was not even using a pseudonym but just simply saying <clears throat> the words of Enoch, and so on. That is the nearest, I think, that anybody can get to assuming that authorship did not matter in those days. Paul, you remember, says, Ye see how large letters I have written to you with mine own hand. Paul was concerned about that. And Paul put his name on all of his epistles. It seems to me that we are on very thin ground when we say that authorship didn't matter in ancient times and that there was no falsification if a man used another man's name in writing a book. After all, a thing is wrong in itself. And if it's wrong to do that today, it was always wrong to do it. Now, it's not wrong to use a pseudonym if you write a novel and you, uh, as I think George Eliot did, you use a pseudonym. That doesn't really matter because you're not deceiving anybody by doing that. You're writing to entertain. It's harmless entertainment. Nobody is deceived by it. But if you write a book and call it the Word of God, a book that has religious authority, and then you use another name in order to gain authority, that's an entirely different matter, and that is dishonest. And if some unknown Jew of the second century had used the name of Daniel to gain authority for his book, then irrespective of what people thought at the time, he did a dishonest thing. Parfrey is right. He lied. He did a dishonest thing. And that is the fundamental weakness in the critical view of the book of Daniel. And I do not see how anybody can get around that. The critical view of Daniel posits a falsehood at its very basis and i think we have to remember that if this critical view is right then when jesus christ said when ye see the abomination of desolation spoken of by daniel the prophet then he was in error and that is the implication we cannot escape that and that is why this question is of significance and importance well the view has gained ground since the time of porphyry it has been enlarged upon that the book of Daniel came from the second century before Christ, and it was written for a specific purpose. At that time, you remember that the Grecian Empire had uh, divided after the death of Alexander the Great. For a time it passed to his sons and then was divided among his four generals. Now the two of those with whom we are principally concerned was Ptolemy, who ruled in Egypt, and uh, Uh, the Seleucus, Seleucus, who ruled in Syria. The dynasty in Syria was known as the Seleucid dynasty and the dynasty in Egypt as the Ptolemaic dynasty. And there were wars between them right along. The 11th chapter of Daniel is a picture of some of those wars. Now, one of these Seleucid rulers, a usurper, was known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, That is the way he spoke of himself. Epiphanes means the illustrious one. People called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman, and that was, I think, a rather better description. But Antiochus Epiphanes was a type of Antichrist, according to the book of, of Daniel. He came on the Sabbath day into the temple in Jerusalem and profaned it and from then on he sought to compel the Jews to abandon their practices and to live in a Greek manner of life. This was one of the blackest days in the history of God's people, and it is because the 11th chapter of Daniel is so accurate in its presentation of these matters that men say it must have been written by a contemporary. But there are certain questions that arise if you say that. For one thing, the 11th chapter of Daniel concludes in a way that seems very strange if you are applying everything to Antiochus. Now the answer, I think, is that the 11th chapter of Daniel goes far beyond the time of Antiochus and speaks of the Antichrist. But there is a strong objection to saying that this was written by a contemporary, and that is this, the whole chapter is written in the future. It describes all these events as though they had not yet occurred, but as though they were going to occur in the future. Consequently, if a contemporary has written all of this material, he has done it in such a way as to make it appear that these things are going to take place in the distant future. In other words, he has deceived. He has given the impression that these are not contemporary events, but are future events and that is the strong argument against saying that this was written by a contemporary. Now, one answer is this. What you say is very true, but we will simply cut this chapter out of the book of Daniel. We will be willing to grant all the rest of Daniel to Daniel, but this particular section even though it it relates things from the standpoint of the future, is so accurate, so in accordance with the fact that we're going to cut it out of the book of Daniel and say that it must have been written by a contemporary or near-contemporary and then was inserted in the book of Daniel later on. Well, now I think that is rather a desperate expedient. You know, whenever people give an explanation of biblical phenomena, which is not the explanation that the Bible itself gives, you very often notice a tone of desperation in it. And I rather suspect that that's what's here. You still, still don't escape the difficulty by doing that. This still is written as though it were recording future events. The moral difficulty is still present. But then there's another difficulty, and that is that the 11th chapter is such an integral part of the book of Daniel and fits in so well, the style and everything being the same, that uh, you just can't cut it out. And there is no manuscript evidence of any kind that shows that this chapter was inserted at a later time. That, I say, is a rather desperate attempt to get away from a difficulty, and I don't think it really does get away from the difficulty. In my opinion, it simply gets us into more serious difficulties. That is usually the way with these attempts to explain the Bible on some basis other than the biblical basis itself. And so there you have it you see, the book of Daniel is said to have been written at the time when Antiochus Epiphanes was upon the throne. Now Antiochus as I said persecuted the Jews, and the situation became so bad that as you know later on under Judas Maccabeus there was an uprising. Now the critical view is that at this time the book of Daniel was written and its purpose was to stir the Jews up in political revolt against the Seleucid rulers. Here was Daniel, so the book said, a man that was heroic at the court of Nebuchadnezzar and we should imitate him. Nebuchadnezzar is really Antiochus Epiphanes and Daniel revolts against him. And so this was used, you see, as an argument to get the Jews to revolt at that time. <clears throat> this is said to be the purpose for the book of the book of Daniel. This, I think, is the critical view, or has been generally, the generally accepted critical view, that the book is the product of the second century before Christ and that its purpose was to inspire the Jews so that they would revolt against the Greeks, as Daniel supposedly has done. Now, there are a few objections to all of that. For one thing, I can't see why they ever appealed to Daniel. There is one thing about Daniel that we need to remember, and that is this. He was not a political rebel. Daniel was not advocating the overthrow of Nebuchadnezzar. That isn't what he did at all. Daniel didn't say, you're a bad king, Nebuchadnezzar, and we're going to try to get a different king on the throne. That was not Daniel's function. Daniel was determined to show that the God of the Israelites was the true God, and the gods of the Babylonians were idols. That was what Daniel was doing. Daniel was engaged in a religious struggle. And I think he sets an example for every minister of Christ, too. We make a mistake when we think that a political struggle is the same thing as preaching the gospel. I think we're used of God a great deal more when we stay to the preaching the gospel and don't give all of our lives to political activity. I'm not saying that individual Christians shouldn't give their time to political activity. They should. But there's a very great temptation for ministers that they mistake political activity for preaching the gospel. And Daniel didn't do that. So I would ask, why appeal to Daniel? If you want to overthrow the Grecian government, why appeal to Daniel? He didn't advocate overthrow of anything. You see, there's a sort of a fundamental fallacy in this whole critical argument. If they wanted to use Daniel, he was a rather poor figure, because that wasn't what Daniel was concerned about. Daniel was concerned about being faithful to God. And it's an entirely different thing. Something else has been a little bit embarrassing for this critical view, and that is the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now they have found fragments of the book of Daniel. And as you know, the book of Daniel is written in two languages, Hebrew and Aramaic. And in chapter 2, verse 4, there is a break. They answered the king, and then the word Aramith occurs, which probably means that the following is in Aramaic, rather than that they answered him in Aramaic. And from that point on to the conclusion of the seventh chapter, the whole book is written in the Aramaic language. Now, these fragments of Daniel contain the passage in chapter 2 where the switch is made from Hebrew to Aramaic, and the fragments come from the, early second, from the late 2nd century before Christ, I understand. Almost 50 years, perhaps, after the supposed date, critical date, of the book of Daniel, Now that's getting pretty close to the original. And it's understandable that some men would contend for a later date for these fragments. But if that critical date is correct, then this is the closest to the autographer of anything we have in the scriptures. And I think we ought to think about this a little bit. Is it likely that the book would have been widespread in so short a time. They didn't have printing presses, remember. This, I think, is a serious consideration, this presence of the Dead Sea Scrolls with respect to the late date of the book of Daniel. Now another factor has entered the scene, and that is that there is no doubt but what portions of the book of Daniel are a great deal older than the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, the 2nd century B.C.? Uh, the 2nd century BC. Gustav Hirscher, a German critic, has first called attention to this fact, that a great deal of the material contained in the book of Daniel is much earlier than the 2nd century B.C., And so you can no longer simply say that the book of Daniel was written to encourage people to revolt against the Seleucids. (coughs) Well, then what on earth was the purpose of the book of Daniel? Now, I personally feel that the critical viewpoint has been embarrassed here. What was the purpose of the book of Daniel? Well, we always can fall back on the good old word myth here. These were stories that circulated about Daniel and they were collected in the 2nd century B.C. so that there is a 2nd century authorship even though much of the material went back to a much earlier time and the book really served the same purpose. But if you hold that, you have the same objections that I've just been bringing up. Now I would like to have us look at the book itself a little bit and some of the problems that are supposedly uh, found in the book. One of these is the question of the language, of the Aramaic language. Language. The Aramaic of Daniel, we are told, belongs to what is called Reichs Aramaic or Kingdom Aramaic, which was widespread from the 5th century BC onwards. And probably the Aramaic of Daniel comes from around the 3rd century before Christ. At any, at any rate, it is thought to be too late for the time of Daniel himself. Uh, May I just point out one or two of the matters that are discussed. A word that is spelled with a Z is said to be early. In later times, the Z gives place to a D. That is the argument. Now, actually, both of these represent another consonant which is not written in the Aramaic script, And way back in the Rashamra texts from 1450 B.C., these same words are spelled with a D instead of a Z. Uh, Without going into any detail, I want to say that the same philological process which is found in Daniel is found also in these earlier Rashamra texts. And to me, that's a rather striking fact. Then also... (coughs) We are told that in later Aramaic, a change in spelling of another kind came. A K was represented more by the consonant known as Ayan, which we incorrectly pronounce like an A. The word earth, for example, was pronounced Arka in early times. In later times, it was pronounced ar Now you find it in one verse in Jeremiah, which is written in Aramaic, written both ways, when the transition was supposed to be taking place. Very well, in Daniel it is always written Ar-ah. But now there has come to light from the time of Darius the Great, just a few years after the time of Daniel, when Daniel might still have been living, by the way, a document written in the cuneiform language, a document which contains a number of Aramaic words written in the cuneiform, and one of them is this word for earth, and here on this document it is spelt Ar-ah instead of ar Now that shows, you see, that this spelling was widespread at that time. And this is, to give them the most, just a few years after the time of Daniel. This was widespread, in other words that it would be taken up in another language and spelled this way. Now, I do not mean to give the impression that there are no difficulties in this question. There are, surely. But I do think we may truthfully say that there is nothing in the Aramaic of Daniel, or the Hebrew either, for that matter, which would preclude authorship in the 6th century before Christ, that is, authorship by Daniel, It is quite possible also that the copies of Daniel which we have in our manuscripts are copies of earlier copies, of course they are, and that there may have been spelling reforms and modifications. That is quite possible. Just as you and I today, when we translate the Bible, use the spelling that is current in our own day and not the spelling that was current several hundred years ago. It's just to be expected that we do that. We know that in Genesis, in one place, the name Dan has been substituted for the earlier name Laish. That is not a mistake in the Bible. It simply means that the scribes are bringing the text up to date, and quite possibly they have done this with the Aramaic of Daniel. At any rate, I firmly believe that there is no reason why the Aramaic found in the book of Daniel, as it is, could not have been written by Daniel himself. Now, there have come to light earlier treatises written in Aramaic, some of them going back to the 8th century before Christ. That is a good 200 years before the time of Daniel. And the study of these treatises is very interesting our conceptions of the Aramaic language are having to be modified somewhat. So I am strengthened in my conviction that there is no reason to assume that the language in which the book of Daniel is written could not have been written by Daniel himself. Now, I think I know the arguments that are advanced to the contrary. I think I've worked through all of this material, and I believe we can say that in all truthfulness. That, however, is the sort of thing that you can't bring out in a popular lecture. It is the sort of thing that uh, I hope, the Lord spares my life, that someday I can devote time to writing on this particular subject. I think we have nothing to be afraid of as along this particular line. But it is also argued, you see, that there are historical inaccuracies in the book of Daniel. Now there are difficulties in Daniel, surely, as there are in every biblical book as there are in every ancient writing, I would say. And one of these historical difficulties is found in the first verse of the book. We read there that in the third year of Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar the king came and he besieged Jerusalem. Now one commentary says that there are three historical blunders in that first verse. The first of these is found in this name, or in this date, in the third year of Jehoiakim. And the difficulty is this, that Jeremiah says in the 25th chapter that in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar came. Daniel says the third year, Jeremiah says the fourth year. And so we are told there is an error here, and that the error is on the part of Daniel. In the ninth chapter of Daniel, you remember that Daniel says, I was reading by in the books the number of the years that the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah, saying. Now Daniel was reading Jeremiah, and he was reading this particular section. For it is this section, chapter 25 of Jeremiah, that speaks of, and in this section, that speaks of the 70 years of the captivity. The captivity was now about at an end. The 70 years had passed and Daniel desired to know from Jeremiah what God would do next. He was studying Jeremiah. Now, if the author was studying Jeremiah, he would have read this statement that Nebuchadnezzar came in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Why then did he say the third year of Jehoiakim? It seems to me that he must have slipped up rather badly to do that if he had been reading Jeremiah. Here it was fresh in his mind the phrase fourth year, yet he writes in the third year. Now, I just don't understand a thing like that. The only way I can see out of this difficulty is to assume that the book of Daniel consists of a number of separate fragments and this view is beginning to appear and that they were all put together later on. Maybe you can get out of the difficulty that way, and the redactor just left this thing stay because he hadn't been reading Jeremiah at all. If you want to hold that view of Daniel all right, uh, I don't think you can make out a very strong case for it, but you have to fall back on something like that. But to look at the psychological difficulty, why did the author of the book then, having studied Jeremiah and seen that fourth year, now write in the third year? What was the point of doing a thing like that? Was he one of these people that was just deliberately out to confuse everybody? I don't think so. I think that while a number of suggested explanations have been given, and many of them have merit, he was writing from the Babylonian viewpoint, and he was using the Babylonian chronology, or method of reckoning the years, rather than the Palestinian. Now, in Palestine, the Babylonian method was often used and there were interchanges that were quite frequent. Consequently, when Daniel says the third year, he means the same thing as Jeremiah does when he says the fourth year. <coughs> According to the Babylonian method, the year of the enthronement was called simply the enthronement year. The following year, what you and I would call our the second year, was on the Babylonian me- reckoning called the first year. So that on this scheme, according to Daniel, the third year of Jehoiakim would have been, according to Jeremiah's reckoning, the fourth year of Jehoiakim. Now that is not entirely free from difficulty, but I'm inclined to think that that is probably the explanation, and that that fits in well with everything that, uh, with the chronology of the book of Daniel generally. At least that answers the difficulty as much as anything does, and if we can say that much and I'm very happy to see that Professor Wiseman of the University of London has come out with an article on this subject just recently in defense of this particular interpretation. If we can say this, we can see at least that there's no error here in what Daniel has done. Uh, Jeremiah, I do not think, is consistent in the usage of his method of reckoning, and elsewhere he too seems to fall up into the Babylonian method of reckoning. But at any rate, I cannot see that there's a contradiction between what Daniel says and between what Jeremiah says as to the year of Jehoiakim. Then the second supposed error in this verse is that Nebuchadnezzar is called the king, and that actually he was only the crown prince at this time and became king a little later. We know from Josephus and Uh, Now I think we can say even from the chronicles of the Babylonian kings we know more about these incursions of Nebuchadnezzar. It would seem that Nebuchadnezzar had left the battle of Carchemish to come down to Jerusalem and was hurriedly called home because of the death of his father and he became the king. But has Daniel really made an error here? Is not this title used proleptically? Uh, We do that all the time. You and I say Abraham left Mesopotamia. He didn't do that at all. It wasn't called Mesopotamia in his day, was it? That's a later designation, is it not? A good many hundred years later. But have we made a mistake in saying that? Uh, I suppose we should say he left Ur of the Chaldees, or he left Haran. He left the land that we now know as Mesopotamia. Or we say in the childhood of some great political figure, and we name him by his name. That doesn't mean we've made a mistake, does it? We use titles proleptically all the time. Why may not Daniel do that if he wants to? Suppose Daniel had done what some of these people want him to do, and he'd have said in the third year of Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, who then was not king but only the crown prince, but who was to become king a year later when his father died, and he went back to uh, Mesopotamia. Suppose he'd written that way. That might have satisfied some uh, people who like Ph.D. theses and so on and want that sort of thing in them, but that's not biblical writing, and I don't think it would have done much good if he'd written that way. And we don't need all that. This is simply proleptic. Now, the third charge is that it is stated that he captured Jerusalem, whereas Jerusalem did not fall until later, until a few years later in the next century, but that isn't actually stated in this passage at all. These chronicles of the Chaldean kings show that <coughs> the kings did make a number of incursions to the west. And quite possibly, i don't, in fact I would say there's no question about it, that Nebuchadnezzar was able to take Jehoiakim with him and some of the others and then later Jehoiakim came, Jehoiakim came back. I cannot see that anyone has demonstrated that any of the statements that are made there are not in accordance with the fact. The fact later on that there is mention of the Chaldees is said to be an error because they were not spoken of that way in the 6th century before Christ. But it would seem that Herodotus uh, refers to them that way in the following century. And if Daniel wrote his book at the close of the Babylonian period and after the Persians had taken over, that would explain a great many of the Persian customs that are mentioned in the book. The principal error supposedly, is the mention of Darius the Mede. You remember that uh, Darius the Mede is introduced in the fifth chapter. We are told that this is an historical blunder of the first magnitude, that it is a confusion with Darius Hystaspes or Darius the Great or somebody else, and that there never was a Darius the Mede. Well... Uh, there has been a book written with the purpose of showing that you cannot identify Darius the Mede with any known historical character. And this is said to be the great blunder in the book of Daniel. In fact, it has been argued that the book is a unit because it maintains the same historical blunder throughout referring to Darius the Mede. Now, in answer to this, I would simply say that even if we cannot identify Darius the Mede, that doesn't mean that he's not an historical character, If you look at the kings of Egypt and so on, how many of them can you identify? You're simply dependent upon one reference to them. Uh, Does that prove that they never lived, that they're simply the imagination of somebody? Uh, Not at all. The mere fact that you and I cannot identify Darius the Mead doesn't mean that he never lived. But in recent times, Professor John Whitcomb, a very good friend of mine at Grace Theological Seminary, has written a book, in which he makes an attempt to identify Darius the Mede, He points out that there were two men present at that time and that one of them very clearly fits the requirements for Darius the Mede. I think he has made a very convincing case. And Professor Donald Wiseman of the University of London has argued very cogently that Darius the Mede is simply another name for Cyrus the Great. So that... Uh, If you take these two views, here are two very good uh, uh, possibilities. I am not sure which one is right. I, I frankly am not sure. But I admire both these men for the attempts they have made to answer this problem. And they have both given convincing presentations so that nobody can say any longer that the mention of Darius the Mede is an error. Now the argument goes this way. Daniel mentions Darius the Mede. That presupposes that there was a separate Medan empire after the downfall of Babylon, whereas, as a matter of fact, there was no separate Medan empire after the downfall of Babylon, except later on for a few years there seems to have been such. Therefore, inasmuch as there was no such separate Medan empire, the author made a tremendous mistake. And the four kingdoms, according to the critics, are Babylon, then Media then Persia, then Greece. That is the fallacious scheme that the author of Daniel makes because he introduces this figure, Darius the Mede. Now, all of that doesn't follow at all. I understand that during the Second World War, an Austrian, Arthur Seiss-Inquart, was put over Holland by the Germans. Does that mean that Holland was ruled by the Austrian kingdom at that time? I don't think Hitler would have agreed with that interpretation. That doesn't follow at all. Because the man is an Austrian doesn't mean that the Austrian empire or kingdom is ruling, does it? Nebuchadnezzar had a Median wife. She came from Media. That doesn't mean that the Medes were ruling Nebuchadnezzar. I wasn't sure that had come or not. (laughs) Maybe it depends. I'll have to modify my statement there, I guess. But the mere fact that a person is of a certain nationality doesn't mean that that particular kingdom is ruling, and so to say that Darius the Mede took the throne doesn't mean that there was a separate Medan empire at all. That just does not follow. I think it's wrong to insist upon that, that there was a separate Medan empire. And consequently, it is wrong to say that the identification that Daniel gives here is first of Babylon and then of a separate Medan empire and then a Persian empire and then the Grecian empire. And yet you find that in so many of the commentaries. But is that type of reasoning legitimate? Is not that forcing a certain opinion upon the book of Daniel? We have seen then that it is, there is a possibility for identification of Darius the Mede. There is no error in the mention of Darius the Mede. If you are going to say and insist that that is an error, then you must by consistency insist that whenever the Egyptian records or the Assyrian records mention a king of whom we know nothing else, they are necessarily making an error, and nobody wants to do that. Now, so much has come to light concerning this fifth chapter of Daniel which is supposed to be the passage that has the error, speaking of Darius the Mede, which shows that this comes from Babylonian times. The customs of the Persians, which Daniel would have known full well had he written after the downfall, or just before the downfall of Babylon, (coughs) when these things would have been introduced into Babylon, are mirrored there also. The idea of the king, you see, seated upon a raised dais, eating before his nobles. This is in accordance with the custom of the time. But the fact that Daniel is said to be made the third ruler in the kingdom, this is a rather interesting touch, and I don't see how anybody could have guessed at a thing like this. Because actually Belshazzar was not the first ruler in the kingdom. The first ruler was Nabonidus, and he relinquished all kingly duties to Belshazzar except the celebration of the New Year's festival. And so, in the very nature of the case, Daniel would have been the third. It would have been Nabonidus, Belshazzar, and Daniel. So whether this means one of three or third in the kingdom, you can see what a remarkably accurate touch this is. And this would never have been guessed at by somebody who knew nothing about the situation. We are told that there is an error in the mention of Belshazzar as king. I talked this over with Professor Wiseman, and he just said that he could not understand this objection, and I cannot understand this objection. We know from the documents that the title king was used in a number of different senses, that there were kings over cities, kings over states, and there was the great king who ruled over a number of lesser kings. Now, the actual situation was, according to the contract tablets, that Nabonidus, had entrusted the kingship, Sharutam, to Belshazzar. Belshazzar, therefore, is addressed as Sharu, king, or not on the Babylonian tablets, but could be legitimately addressed that way. On the Babylonian tablets, he is called Marshari, son of the king. But we would expect the Hebrews to refer to him as the king because he was on the throne, he was performing kingly functions, he was the man with whom they had to do. How can you say that that is an error in the book of Daniel? If you look at the third chapter of Daniel, you find there that the measurements that are given are according to the sexagesimal system, and that was what was present in ancient Babylon. If you look at the seventh chapter of Daniel, you find that the great animal, the lion with eagle's wings, well symbolizes Babylon for the lion was symbolical of Babylon and also the eagle, and the winged beasts are found on the monuments of Babylon. How could some unknown Jew of the second century before Christ ever have invented these things and written them in the way you find there? And the picture of Nebuchadnezzar standing up and looking out over this great Babylon that I have built is in perfect agreement with the picture that we have of him from his own inscriptions now I want to close with just this one problem which is being advanced today the Dead Sea Scrolls we are told show us that Daniel is in error when it mentions the king's madness that that never happened to Nebuchadnezzar but it happened rather to Nabonidus because the text from Qumran apply it to Nabonidus well it shows you there very clearly where the love of the critics is The Bible says one thing, and some other document says something else. That other document is right and the Bible is wrong ipso facto. With a number of them, that's the case. But I'm very happy that Professor Porteous in his commentary on Daniel, which is quite a radical commentary, is unwilling to accept that. It is just as possible that these Qumran documents have confused a tradition and applied it to Nabonidus. There is no reason for thinking that they are to be preferred over what is stated in the book of Daniel, none whatsoever. What is stated in the book of Daniel is given in clear form, and that tradition is related elsewhere. Now, that tradition, I think, has been confused to a certain extent by what is said concerning Nabonidus. But if you will compare them carefully, that is, the text, of Qumran and the text of Daniel, you will find that they really are not talking about the same thing at all. And possibly what is related in Qumran may have occurred concerning Nabonidus and has nothing whatever to do with Nebuchadnezzar. But I just say this in case any of you have been troubled by this latest assault on Daniel, that the madness referred to is not the madness of Nebuchadnezzar, but the madness of Nabonidus. That is not the case whatsoever And we have nothing to fear on that particular score. I would close then by saying there are difficulties in the book of Daniel. That is perfectly true. But there are greater difficulties in the critical view of Daniel. And the book of Daniel as it stands, you see, is a unit. It's when you examine its contents and when you notice the way in which it points us forward to Christ and to the triumph of God's kingdom over the kingdoms of this world, that you realize that we are not here dealing with something that originated in the manner that the critics say that it originated, but we are dealing rather with the revealed word of God. Thank you.